let us turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We shall read from verses 1 to 4 together, please. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 together. Reading, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's turn to him in prayer. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this freedom of worship in this land, that we can study your word, we can gather, we can worship without hindrance. And Lord, we pray that as we gather before you, you will once again be merciful to cleanse us, to wash us of all our sins. O Lord, we desire to be clean, white as snow before thee, that our gathering, Lord, would have thy richest blessing, to have thy presence among us. Lord, be merciful. Show us wherein we have sinned. Lord, we want to confess, we want to repent. And Lord, we also pray that your Holy Spirit would work mightily in our hearts tonight as we consider this important topic of biblical interpretation. Lord, we are poor, we are needy. Lord, we need thy Holy Spirit to teach us, instruct us, open our hearts, open our ears, our eyes to see great and wonderful truths. And Lord, build strong conviction in each one of us. Be with us now. Speak, O God, for we want to listen. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, some change to the agenda. I think I was too ambitious last week in presenting what I'll cover this week. So as I prepared the notes, it's already 10 pages. I realized I can't do more than this tonight. So look at your page one. What are we going to do tonight? All right, remember that our objective is to be able to get more out of studying God's Word. And we are going to, we have seen the importance of God's Word and the principles. We are going to introduce um, some tools, hopefully tonight, some of them. And then look at the hermeneutical principles. So tonight is session number two. Look at session number two. We want to look at the schools of interpretation, the different styles of Bible interpretation. I'll tell you why it's important. And then, I still have to ask you that question. I hope you all thought about it. Why is interpreting the Word of God correctly so crucial? All right? See if anyone wants to brave that answer. So we look at the different schools of thoughts of interpretation. Number two, item one, the origins. Origins. How did these different ways of interpreting the Bible come about? They didn't just appear on the scene. Number two, what is the, oh, sorry, why the correct approach is so critical, and hopefully we have time to do some tools, discuss some of the tools available for interpreting the Bible correctly, and to help you in your devotion, all right? So by and large, I want to ground ourselves very firmly in the right methodology of interpreting God's Word. 
because I can do a lot of things, but if you fail to understand this part, um, you will struggle when you read God's Word, when you hear things, you can't discern. Alright, so we want to spend some time to be very clear about the different styles of interpretation, what are their dangers, what is the correct one. Okay? So, let's turn to page number two. Now, the schools of interpretation, I'm going to, by God's grace, hopefully be able to cover um, five of them. Some will be in more depth, some less. Now, there can only be one correct way to interpret God's Word. Why? Because God's Word has how many meaning? Only one meaning. There's only one correct way, methodology. There are many wrong ways. Well, wrong ways there are many, but correct only one. All right? So let's begin. Um, actually, before I even talk about that, let me set, some, set the burning platform. You know the burning platform? Why it is so important? So that hopefully you will pay attention. Right, the burning platform. Look at your page number two, the first statement made. Your principles of interpretation of God's word will both control your thinking as well as influence your actions. That is why the right interpretation and the methodology you use to arrive at the meaning is very important because it will affect how you think as a Christian and how you act as a believer. All right? It can affect your whole interpretation of the Bible. In fact, when you have the wrong school of interpretation, you will apply that to the entire Bible and you'll find that you will have a very messed up theology. And you might even end up being joining a cult. All right? So, number one. Now, that. Now, I recently um, came across this book and it's very well written. In fact, it is written in your paragraph number two. It is written to specifically address the downgrade in the Presbyterian USA Church. The downgrade. What is this downgrade? The falling away, moving away from biblical truth in the Presbyterian movement in the United States. And he gave a very good analysis. And the analysis really comes down to the bottom line. The problem is erroneous interpretation. Because of the wrong interpretation method, the whole movement began to apostate, move away, sway, and get into trouble. All right? Now, some of the ideas that is affecting Christianity today is number one, point number one. Scripture is not inerrant. In fact, this was stated in their affirmation. Um, it's in their Auburn affirmation. Now, they, the liberals, liberals and modernists, I'll, ask, I'll define liberals and modernists to you. The liberals and modernists hold very strongly that now scripture may be inspired. Inspired, remember we studied last week, God did speak scriptures. But it is not necessarily inerrant. Understand? Inspired means yes, God did, give speak, he did speak those words, but it's not necessarily that we, the Bible we have today is without error. So that's one of their foundation. Okay? Now, the second thing is this. You look at point number one. I try to quote them because this man described it very well. The Bible is not fixed not on self-derived rules of interpretation. Means we cannot say the Bible has only one meaning. It's not fixed. And it's not self-derived. Self-derived 
is one of two of the C's, right? Self-derived or one of the C comparison. Scripture interpreting scripture. So they say, no, no, no. It's not necessary to use what is in the Bible to interpret itself. So not self-derived uh, when, you, when it comes to interpretation. And then he says, um, therefore men can teach whatever they want from scripture so long as they claim they do so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Ah, very important. We will look at that up more afterwards. The claim is as long as you have the Holy Spirit, you're born again, and the Holy Spirit speaks to you as you read, the Holy Spirit tells you, therefore you can go ahead and say and teach because you are being guided by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that very common nowadays? Hmm? The common saying is, well, that's your interpretation. The Holy Spirit tell, told me differently. This is, this is not a vacuum. It did not come overnight. The reason why many Christians are saying this today, instead of in the past, yes, the Bible has only one meaning. We cannot take this passage and interpret it as we wish. Today they say, oh, no, no, that's your interpretation. This is my interpretation. Both of us have the Holy Spirit, so respect each other's view. That is what is happening today in, in, in biblical interpretation. Now, they are called modernists. All right, you want to write this down? The definition, the key traits of modernists. If you say, what's a modernist? Now, modernists, they put signs first. Okay, signs. Signs is above God's word. They will put um, unity first. Means unity at all cost. All right, they will put the gospel, as in social gospel, as more important than truth. Social gospel means just go build build schools and do social work, that kind of thing. But more important is for you to know the definition of a liberal. All right, a liberal. What is a liberal? A liberal characteristic is like that. Number one, the liberal do not believe in absolute truth. No absolute truth. Means you say, this, there must be only one meaning and this must be the meaning. You say, no, no, we cannot say there's anything that's absolute. Nothing is certain. So number one, they do not believe in absolute truth. And because of that, it leads them to the second problem. They will put experience above God's word. All right? Experience will be more important than God's word. You can show them, but they say, no, no, but my, but my experience is different. In other words, their experience will validate God's word rather than God's word validate their experience. All right? Liberals. Okay? So you must understand these definitions. Because as we go through the different schools of interpretation, you begin to see their heads rearing up. Now, number, number two. So the church, in the name of liberty and unity, um, far from requiring conformity in doctrine to its ministers and elders, must permit development and propagation of multiple conflicting theor theories about the great facts of doctrines. In other words, he's saying this, that the, the climate today in interpreting the Bible is this. Even when it comes to great facts, important facts, can be your salvation, can be... Um, virgin birth, um, Christ being God, resurrection, all these great facts. Now, the church must have this openness that permit multiple conflicting theories even about these great facts. Okay? So that's another thing that's happening that is progressively creeping into church. Number three, postmodern thinking. 
Postmodern thinking propagates, number three, no single reality. Now, this is very crucial. No single reality means, again, it's no certainty, but when you read scriptures, when you read scriptures, it's up to you to come to your own conclusion based on your own experience, and everything is legitimate as long as you claim that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. It's legitimate. All right? So that is the thinking today. And then the last one. They have developed a hermeneutic of trust. And hermeneutic means the interpretation of scriptures. A way of interpretation of scriptures that must propagate trust. What does it mean? So it says that we are supposed to embrace um, the same doctrine, but even if they differ radically in the meaning of words, and principles, even they arrive at different conclusions and mutually exclusive, yet no one has the right to say that the position he holds is the truth to the exclusion of all others. In other words, it means this. Hermeneutic of trust means we must trust each other's interpretation. We must not say that ours is the only one that is correct. We must trust that the other person's one is also equally correct, even if it's totally 180 degrees away from yours. Hermeneutic of trust. Alright, so now this is that huge way of thinking in terms of interpreting the Bible that has taken the Presbyterian Church of the United States, I won't say just the Presbyterian Church, but every church, in how we approach scriptures. Alright? Now, this is the burning platform. This will come to us. In fact, this is already present in many Australian churches. You go to their website, you read and listen to their sermons. The same hermeneutics is like that. Now, it has already come to every land. It, is, it will knock on our doors. Why do I want to do hermeneutics? Some of you think hermeneutics is for Bible college students, it's for theologians. Why are we doing this in church? Every concept that you have about, about Christianity, every idea you have about how you should live your life as a Christian today, you may not know this word hermeneutics, but you are actually exercising certain hermeneutics yourself already in how you interpret scriptures, how you come to that conclusion, and therefore how it influences your life. You are already practicing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you must know and have the various errors very clear in your mind so that when you are thinking about scriptures, you are already interpreting scriptures in your mind, whether you know this word hermeneutics or not. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting scriptures. So whether you know it or not, you are practicing it. So it's very important that we understand it. You understand? Alright, so don't think this is just for theologians. No. Everything that you think is behind it, the mechanism that is working all the time in your mind, in your heart, is hermeneutical principles occurring. Okay? So now, because of that, that, it is very important as a church, we know. You say you want to do your devotion, you want to, you, but, you're, but some of you ask the question, but I'm afraid I interpret it wrongly. How do I know when I study scriptures, when I read my devotion, Jesus says this, and then I think that is what he's saying, or this is what he's telling me to do. Is that correct or not correct? How do I know? Well, if you have a good grasp, or at least an introduction to the methodologies, what is right, what is wrong, you know how to begin to guide your thoughts, all right? Okay? So now, then let's begin. The first method. 
the literal method. Okay, or sometimes you see in books, it's called the grammatical historical method. All right, now what is this method? For every method, we'll go through systematically the method, the origin, the evaluation, and some examples. All right, the method. Now, the literal method is known as grammatical historical method of interpreting scriptures. It seeks to, uh, here it is, number, point number two. It seeks to accurately understand the biblical author's original and intended meaning expressed in the text. Okay, now this is um, a layman's way to explain to you. In other words, he says, when you apply the literal method, you read the plain sense of scriptures. Not only that, you're trying to figure out, now what is Paul saying here? Not what you want Paul to say, not what you think someone else says Paul is saying. What is Paul, what Paul exactly is saying and addressing? Is it actually Paul? It's actually God, right? <laughs> What is God exactly saying here? I'm trying to find out God's mind. Understand God's mind when God say this, what is God exactly saying in this passage, in this text? That is the literal method. Okay, next. Now, this method finds its basis and boundaries in grammar and history. Now, that's why it's called grammatical historical grammar. In other words, when, when you read scriptures, you have to look at the grammar. Now, this is a bit more difficult. Um, when you are not familiar with the original languages. That's why the King James Bible is very useful, it's very precise in its interpretation for us. The grammar is there. All right? Sometimes you read, say, how come it says like that? Because they are actually translating the grammar for you even. All right? So it's very precise. Now, the grammatical and historical. Historical, what is the setting? What is the reason why Paul said this, why Christ said this, the setting, the, the historical setting. So the person who literally interprets God's word, literally, he will take this whole setting. And then he looks at that and he says, okay, now I try and find what God is trying to say exactly. Okay, now, page, page three. Now, on that basis, you have to make certain assumptions. It means that the literal method considers the Bible to be historically genuine. Historically genuine. You say, of course. Sir. That's because you grew up in a conservative church. You say, of course. As we cover the other types. And as we cover tools, I will read to you great commentators that maybe you use all the time. Um, Barnes, Clark. Um, many of these, you buy, you buy Sword Searcher, right? Many of you have sought searcher. How many have sought searcher? Yeah. All right. Many of you have sought searcher. Um, sought searcher software. I try to use all those commentators there. And I'll show you. You think, we think that, yeah, everybody believes what the Bible says is historically true. Not true. There are those who do not believe. He say, oh no, this part is, God is just um, giving us a story, uh, a myth. It is not true, historically. All right? Okay, so... So that, so, um, so not made of legends and myths, and it is supposed to be taken literally unless scripture says otherwise. Okay, so now hermeneutical principle, point four. Point four. Um, so we take into context the culture, the politics, the economy of the time, as well as um, the different um, Hebrew and Greek languages into account. Then we come to the conclusion. I will give you some examples afterwards. Um, but 
Now, the origin, how did it come about? Actually, the origin is the original. <laughs> Alright? Now, look at the origin. Nehemiah 8.8 8. Ezra, the prophet Ezra, applied this method in the Old Testament when he read and gave the sense or meaning of the text. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, let's read together. So, they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. See? So, what did Ezra do? Ezra simply took God's word, he read it. In other words, he just read it as it is. Give the plain sense, alright? And then what did he do next? He gave the sense, in other words, he started to interpret it. He interpreted plainly as what is read, he did not try and read more than that into God's word and caused them to understand the reading. In other words, literally. He just literally read and literally gave them the sense, not injecting his own thoughts. It was a direct literal interpretation. Okay? Now, evaluation. The literal method leads to divine, leads to the right divine meaning and intention of the text. Now, this is the whole intention of reading the Bible. Please get it very clear in your heart. If you miss anything in these few sessions, get one thing in your heart and mind. The purpose of reading the Bible is to lead to the right divine meaning as intended in the text by God. Understand that. I'll talk about that a bit more. That is the whole purpose of reading the Bible. Okay? Then from there, you're going to draw everything else. Don't sit down and do your devotion. Today I'm trying to... Today I feel very sad. I feel a bit down. So when I read the Bible, I want to read this part and say, oh, this part, I want this part to cheer me up. Whether God intended that part to be cheering you up or not, it does not matter. I want to be cheered up. <laughs> Alright, so I read it. No. You read, you read your devotion by saying, God, what are you talking about here? What, is, what was on your mind when you were writing, when you had this written for men? I want to know it. Alright? So that is the key reason why we read scriptures. Now, next. The foundation. Okay? The foundation is historical context. Now, importantly... Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly affirms that the true and full sense of Scripture is not manifold but one, right? We covered that last week. Not manifold. You cannot read this passage and interpret it as you want. It is only one meaning that God intended. Alright, I think I've said that more than enough times already. But, um, so now, I want to give you an example of historical grammatical, especially grammatical. All right. For example, how does one apply the grammatical aspect? Now, this involves language. And I want you to understand this not because I expect you to know language, because you don't have the luxury to go spend a few years studying languages, but I want you to understand that when you interpret scriptures, you cannot simply say the grammar is this, as I understand it, and then therefore it should be this. All right? There are rules in the original language that we have to respect. Okay? Now, i give you a very common example. I don't know if it's common to you. But Psalm 12, 6 and 7. Let's turn to Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The grammar is crucial. 
Shall we read 6 and 7 together? The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forevermore. Now, here is a very clear teaching that God preserved. What? The words are very pure, tried, very pure, and God says He will preserve them. He will keep them, preserve. The doctrine of that God will preserve His words. Not a single thing will be lost. But there are those that argue against preservation. They don't believe that we have a perfect Bible. They say, no, some words are lost. And how do they argue? They go to the grammar. All right, so you just have to take it from me because um, um, I checked the background and the, the Hebrew. Now, the words of the Lord. Now, these words of the Lord is in feminine plural. That you understand, right? Those of you who have done any language. Feminine plural means it's feminine. It's not masculine, it's not neutered. So these words of the Lord, words, they are feminine plural. But they argue that because, verse 7 says, thou shalt keep them, preserve them. Now, this them is in masculine plural. You understand? Say words is feminine plural. But when it comes to God, keep them, preserve them, this them is masculine plural. Say, hey, don't match, right? Don't match. If don't match, it's like, it's like that. I would say, um, uh, John took, uh, sorry, John is a good boy. Uh, John is a good boy. I will reward her. Hmm? Then you say, of course you're not talking about rewarding John because I say her. All right? So I can't be giving reward to John. Right? So they argue like that. See, see grammar, grammatically, it shows that God did not promise to preserve His Word. In fact, this them talks about the people. God will preserve the people. It is not God preserving words. Sounds logical? Now, interpretation of grammatical, historical is very important. We've got to understand the, the grammar behind it. I wrote there for you, here, now, this man, Gesenius, He's a well-known Hebrew grammarian. All right. Now, he is well-versed with the Hebrew grammar. Now, he pointed out rightly that the masculine suffixes, especially in plural, are not infrequently used to refer to feminine substantives. What he's saying is this. In the Hebrew language, you will see very often the Hebrew, when they're referring, they will actually change the gender, especially the plural gender, and it refers to the same thing. It is not unusual. All right? We cannot force what our English language is, that grammar, and force it upon the Hebrew language. Do you understand what I'm saying? You cannot. Even in Chinese, when we say certain things, it doesn't make sense in English. It doesn't tally. But you cannot say, oh, the Chinese said that wrongly. They say that precisely according to their own language. That's how they say it. Okay, so now we cannot enforce. In fact, it is very clear. I just cited some examples. In fact, some of you, if you um, can find Dr. Quack's write-up on this, it is very clear. He gives far more details than what I'm just stating here. Now, Genesis 31.9, Genesis 32.15, these are examples. In fact, Exodus 1.21 is a very, very good example. You just turn there with me. Please be patient. Exodus 21, Exodus 1. 
Oops, I think I might have got it wrong. Exodus 1.21. Oh, it's correct. Okay, Exodus 1.21, shall we read together? A very famous passage, right? We preached on this before. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Now, we know the midwives, they, they, they feared God and they did not obey Pharaoh. And as a result, God made them houses, right? God prospered them, correct? Now, midwives, male or female, you think? Female, right? God, midwife, female. When here, when God says, and he, which is God, made them houses. Guess what? It's the same, like Psalm 12. This them is in masculine plural. Understand? So it is a very common way for the Hebrews to state it. Grammatical, historical. The grammar is crucial. So we cannot just ignore grammar. All right? In fact, I, when I preach, I often try to make many of these grammar, grammatical tools known to you, right? I always say, when you read the Hebrew, when you read Old Testament, I say it many times, it's, it's very exciting when you even understand very simple things. And that's why the King James Bible is so good. It, it includes the Hebrew grammar in there for you. Which one? I always say, when you read Old Testament, you often see and, right? And he did this, and he did that, and he went there, and he did this, and he went home, and, 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 and. Who in English ever writes like that? Ray, do you write like that in school? And your teacher will say, Ray, what's wrong with you? Do you like that word and so much? And, 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 and all the time. I, I kept telling you, when you do your devotion, watch out for these Hebrew grammatical tools. When the end is, is not added by people, it's, it's a very important, important um, conjunction in the Hebrew language. When end is always there, it is actually to emphasize the deliberate, intentional action that is going on. And you slow down and you read it in slow motion and you go through all, it's very deliberate. All, right, all these tools are there. Right? That's why when you do your devotion, when you, when you pay attention to this, then you begin, oh, this is the emphasis. Something is happening here. God wants my attention. Something serious is happening. All right? So like, like when, when Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, so many N, you know, N, 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 N. God is emphasizing what is happening there. What must be going through Abraham's heart? What must be going through Isaac's heart? Right, slow down in slow motion and consider what Abraham is doing. Imagine his great faith. Right, so all these are there. So you want to enjoy your Bible reading? Notice these things, I always say. The word therefore in the New Testament. Therefore, very important. That, purpose clause. Whenever you say that, he's trying to read. What is God trying to say here? Ah, look at the word that, T-H-A-T. There's often a purpose clause. The reason is being given now. Alright, so... So direct, literal, very simple. But I just want to say one thing, then we move very quickly. Now, literal does not mean wooden literal. All right? Wooden literal, please. Next one, page four. I really got to speed up. Now, literal method is not wooden literal. There are figures of speech in the Bible. Of course, right? Figures of speech, idioms, very clear. Metaphors. Metaphors are this. Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the bread of life. It does not mean that Jesus will literally these things, all right? So there are metaphors. You are the light of the world. How many of you think you're of 
photon-emitting <laughs> devices when you walk into night, right? These are metaphors. So we, we know that there are metaphors. We interpret them as metaphors. There are similes. Similes. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. Similes is like. You see, it's like, you know, it's a simile. But you cannot say the kingdom of heaven is exactly like that. All right? So there are figures of speech also, um, or allegory. Now, there is allegory. Allegory in Galatians 4 is very clear about Hagar and Sarah, right? Very clear, allegory. You go back and read that. Paul said this is the allegory of it. There are allegories. But it's different from allegorization. I'm going to cover that afterwards. Different. Now, then figures of speech. Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again. Right? Figures of speech. There are, there's also the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Figures of speech. Very important. Now, you cannot be wooden literal. Once you're wooden literal in these similes and figures of speech, you know what will happen? It will also cause wrong living. I know of a person in a full-time ministry. He reads this verse and says, Oh, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Christians must be like that. Wooden literal. So he does not sleep on the bed. He makes sure he doesn't have pillow. When he's on missionary trips, everyone sleeps on bed in the hotel. He sleeps on the floor without pillow. Hmm? But actually, I went to his house. He had bed and pillow, so I don't understand. <laughs> now, when we begin to interpret God's word like that, we can go into funny living. All right? So not wooden literal, but it's literal. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You have to draw the literal principle, the literal meaning. He has... He is not received anywhere. He can't rest anywhere. He's not safe anywhere. That's what, how it means. For example, I say, oh, you're, you're, you're thin as a pencil. <laughs> Does it mean you're a pencil? No, right? Figures of speech. At camp. Someone said, I slept with a train last night. I couldn't figure out, what? I slept with a train last night? Oh, then I figured out. <laughs> right? Figures of speech. Slept with a train last night means what? <laughs> my, my bunkmate kept snoring. <laughs> Out loud, it was like a train going by all the time. I couldn't sleep. Figures of speech. How did a train get into your room? Right? Figures of speech. So we don't interpret it like that. Or people say, oh, you snore like a pig. And the guy was very kind. I want to call the flatmate a pig, right? But it's like very loud, all right? If you can't imagine, very loud. Okay, so now figures of speech. So now interpretation. But now on to move. So this is obviously the correct way. The correct way. I want to spend some time about the wrong way. And you will find that, oh, I didn't know. Very often, that's how I interpret. Now, the second method. Now, this is the very dangerous, the big one. A lot of people practice this. You read commentaries. Now, that is another reason why I'm covering all this. Uh, because you, your, many of your questions that kept coming in is this question. Can I use commentaries? You know what commentaries? Um, like um, those in those materials or books you buy. They comment on the verses in the Bible, commentaries. Okay? Many of you ask, can I use commentaries? Um, I get, I do not know how best to answer you. But as I prepare this, I know this is good. Because now you have to understand the interpretation methods of the commentators. Once you understand their method, it is safe for you to use. You know how to differentiate. Because sometimes someone tells you, yeah, yeah, I can use. Matthew Henry. I said, but I also don't want to tell you because Matthew Henry is very allegorical. Hmm? Then I said, what's allegorical? <laughs> right? So sometimes I just don't want to answer that question. But after this, I hope it becomes clear. The reason why we want to cover this is so that you know how to use commentaries. Okay? Now, allegorical method. 
used by many commentators. What is it? Number one, the allegorical method erroneously considers the Bible to be a succession of allegories. Now, allegories means there are symbols. Everything is a symbol. All right? Now, point number two, I elaborate more. To this method, the literal and natural understood sense of a text is but the external facade. In other words, when God says, um, um, go, go to Jerusalem, very straightforward. Go to Jerusalem means the disciples go to Jerusalem. But I say, no, no. The allegor allegorical method thinks that this natural understood state sense is just a facade. You know, facade means just an external thing. Now, we have to find the true sense, the true meaning. There is, there is a meaning hidden behind the plain and simple facade. Okay? Point number three. So, the allegorical, allegorical method seeks to uncover the secondary and hidden meanings underlying the primary and obvious meaning of the narrative. Now, this is very simple. Christ said, go to, go to Jerusalem, go loose the donkey and bring it back. Right? So, the, they literally went there, looked for the donkey, lose the donkey, brought it back. But for the allegorical method of in interpretation, they say, oh, no, no, not that simple. There is a meaning about go to get a donkey. So there will be all sorts of things, all right? Allegory. There is, they're always finding the meaning behind. The literal method is what? Simply say God, what, what God says, find God's meaning. That's it. But this one, they're finding hidden meanings, okay? Hidden meanings. An example, okay? Actually, this is how they practice it. Um, okay, actually, point number four. Let me read point number four. They must look beyond the plain and obvious meaning to find a spiritual substance. So, you want the spiritual meaning? Cannot just read the Bible so plainly. You have to find the meaning behind. I hope none of you say my, 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 my devotion is very boring. I hope none of you is not thinking, because when I read the Go Get the Donkey, I don't know what's the meaning. <laughs> they simply went to get the donkey, alright? Don't try and figure out, oh, donkey, let me try to imagine. Must be this, must be that. Then go to Jerusalem, let me see Jerusalem. Alright, no, just plain meaning. Okay, so I hope you don't think your, your, your Bible study is boring because you're not seeing meanings behind it. Okay, now, for example, okay, so they allegorize. So now you know why it's allegorizing? They take names, they take places, they take events, they take things, and then they apply meanings to it. They, they derive meanings from it. Okay, I'll give you an example. Maybe an example is easiest. Um, if you turn to your example page, page number six. All right, page number six. Now, this is an allegorical way of understanding Abraham, Isaac, and Rebecca, and the servant. Now, this is not a joke. All right, this is actually preached by a preacher. Preached by a preacher by a BP preacher in an Australian church. Alright? A church that we know and we are close to. So, don't think that all preachers are correct. You must know. You must know the different styles. If you don't know, it's dangerous. Now, this preacher preached this in Genesis 24. We know, he says that Abraham is God. Not Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca. Abraham is God. Isaac is the son. Rebecca is the church. Now, if, if Rebecca is the church, what makes the servant? The servant is the Holy Spirit. 
Because the servant went to look for the bride, right? Went to look for the church. The church of God, which is the bride. So, then therefore the servant is the Holy Spirit. Now, there is no basis for this. No basis at all. What's the basis? But allegorizing means every person, name, place, event, thing, I must attach. The way I interpret scriptures is I must attach a meaning to it and then try and figure out that whole picture together and say, now I found a hidden meaning behind Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, and the servant. It is about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and the church. Actually, it sounds very good, right? I don't know. If you never knew this is allegorizing, when you sit there, would you say, whoa, this preacher is something else, man. <laughs> I'm going to listen to him more often. Isn't it? Because doesn't the whole picture come together so beautifully? Beautiful. Now, this is allegorizing. God simply says, this is the event. Actually, it's all about what? Don't go and marry people that are not the people of God. Right? Go find someone who is of the same people. That is the historical meaning, right? Literal, grammatical, historical. You have to look at the historical context. They were away. They said, please, make sure that you find someone that is of our people. Go there and find the historical context. What is happening there? The cultural context. What is the cultural context? The cultural context, there were intermarriages that would happen. Right? The theological context is what? The theological context is the seed must come and it must be pure, right? Not intermarriage. So all these things, literal, grammatical, literal, not attaching meanings, not attaching meanings. Okay, so now I just want you to come back very quickly to page four. Page four. Are there allegories in the Bible? Yes. There are allegories in the Bible. Be very clear. Galatians 4, Hagar and Sarah. And, this, and Paul literally said this is the allegory, right? There are real allegories. But the point is this. You can guess the point already, right? It is not for you and I to decide whether it is an allegory. You understand? If God tells us it is an allegory in His inspired word, we use scripture to interpret scripture, right? That's the biblical golden rule. If scripture says this Hagar and Sarah is an allegory, then it is an allegory because God says so, scripture says so. We take it as an allegory. But any one of you in these years of reading the Bible ever come across God say Abraham is the father, Isaac is the son, Rebecca is the church, the Holy Spirit is the servant, any one of you ever come across in the Bible, in scriptures itself, God ever said this is an allegory? No. Understand? You don't attach your own meaning. But if God says so, it is an allegory. Alright? So only God knows. Understand? Now, this is going to be a repeated principle, very simple principle. Let it be part of your Bible studying um, rule when you read scriptures. Whenever you're not sure, am I interpreting this correct? Just ask this. Does, did God say that this is the case somewhere else? That's a very safe rule. Okay? If you, you read, then you begin to think, wow, fair haven, fair haven. We just did Acts chapter 27, right? Fair haven, remember before their shipwreck? The place called fair haven, fair haven. Fair means good. Haven sounds like heaven. Wow, it must be a good place. When you start to think like that, then you have to ask yourself, did God say fair heaven is a good place? If no, then it is just a place. That's it. <laughs> 
Alright? So that's how you control your thinking as you interpret scriptures. Now, so there are allegories. That's why point four, the Apostle Paul wrote under moving point number seven, sorry, under the moving of the Holy Spirit, the allegory is from God, so it's legitimate. Now, the question is this, how did all this way of interpreting come about? You remember right from the beginning, during the prophet's time, Ezra did the literal, historical, the literal method of interpretation to the people, right? So now the question is this, how did this unique or strange way to interpret scriptures come about? Okay, I've recorded the history for you. Now, the origin is this, don't, don't read, I'll just tell you. Now, it happened like that. You remember the 400 years of silence? There are 400 years where there's no word of God given, that silent period. Now, during that period, uh, we know that the, the Jews came under the rule of the Romans. Uh, so before that, the Greeks. All right? So Greek culture was flourishing, right? Flourishing. Now, during that time, obviously many of the Jews came back from captivity, right? And many of them lived among the Greeks. They had embraced their Greek culture. They spoke Greek language like... Um, Shen, uh, like Jaslyn, can you speak Mandarin? Oh, bad example, you can. Okay, um, someone from Malaysia. From Malaysia. Alright, do you speak uh, like Joshua? Your parents are from Malaysia, right? Yeah, do you speak Malay? None at all. A little. <laughs> Uncle Bernie says a little. Uncle Bernie still does. Right, Joshua, don't speak Malay anymore. Alright, Joshua is totally Australian. We call it ABC, right? Australian-born Chinese, totally Chinese, but totally Australian. All right, so totally Australian. So the Jews then were totally Greeks already. They cannot speak the Hebrew language, the 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 um, at all anymore. So then when they read the Old Testament, how? Number one. Number two is this. Now, because at that time the Greek mythologies, the Greek culture were very very strong and advanced. These people already were very much embraced, have already pretty much embraced their culture, their lifestyle, their thinking, their philosophies, their myths, their everything. So at this time, many of these Jewish people said, look, we love this culture, we love their mythology, you know, Hercules, who else? Um, Thor and all this. These were their great gods, you know, their, their myths. They love all these gods. So they begin to say, but we are still um, supposed to be people, descendants of the people of God. How? We still have to study the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament. Well, we have it now, maybe in, in Greek. But how to, un, how to read the Bible in a way which I can preserve all the things that I like about the Greek culture and myths? You understand that? So because of that, allegorizing came about. They began to read. Now, if I read this part, if scriptures tell me this, but it is opposite to what the Greek philosophy is, how do I reconcile them? Ah, I know. I will allegorize. I say, oh, God says this. Oh, but this means, oh, this is tied to Zeus. This is tied to all sorts of mythology that we have. Do you understand? That's why they start to take things in the Bible and put their own meaning into it so that they can make the Greek culture and miss part of their religion. Do you understand? This is how allegorizing came about for the Christian world. It started to creep in in how they interpret or choose to interpret God's word to suit themselves. That is the origin. If you go, you have a time, you can go and study it. Very interesting. More to read. Now, remember I started this session by telling you what the liberals are. Alright? 
Now, the liberals, by definition, do not have absolutes, right? And remember I said their experience is more important than truth. Their experience will define how, what God says in His Word. Understand? Okay? Now, in other words, today it is no different. This method of allegorization is the, has the same purpose. The liberals and modernists, they want they already embraced evolution, they embraced um, 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 whatever other worldly philosophy, how to make God's word say what they want to embrace. Allegorize. Allegorize. Give you an example is the charismatics, right? The charismatics. The charismatics will allegorize many things in the Bible because it suits their experience. Have you come across like, well, now how can you say that the fire comes down, the cloven tongues come down, then after that they are called slain in the spirit? How? How? You seen any slain in the spirit in the Bible? Don't have, right? But they must interpret. You see, all these things happening, they are being slain in the spirit because they experience being slain in the spirit. How many of you have experienced being slain in the spirit? Anyone? No? I think I have. <laughs> I remember when I first got saved, I went to a charismatic church, and then they asked us all to come forward, and then I went forward too, and then the guy just sweeped the hand, and then he brought his hand near me, and I fell back. I fell back, fell down on the floor. He didn't touch me. Right? I experienced that. Now, if my interpretation, my method of interpretation is allegorical, means means if my interpretation um, concept is my experience validates God's word. Then what will happen? What will happen is this. I will then read scriptures. Oh, these people, the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they were overwhelmed and I read everything. Wow, this is being slain in the spirit. Therefore, there is such a thing as slain in the spirit in the Bible. I attach my experience. I take an event in the Bible and I say that is I'm interpreting it according to my experience. Do you understand? Allegorical method is very dangerous. It is not, let's read that, the grammar, the context, the history, and ask ourselves what is happening there? What was God doing? What is God saying? It becomes, I have that experience, and I want that experience to be in the Bible to support that experience. Understand that? That is very dangerous. That's the allegorical method. Now, the evaluation. Well, it becomes very clear, right? What is the danger? The interpreter makes God say, look at page 5. Now, I evaluate. The interpreter makes God say what he did not mean or intend. And he reads meaning in. Okay? Now, point number 2 is important. Now, it can be argued that scriptures is used. Right? I use scriptures. I read Acts chapter 2 to you, didn't I? I can argue that. But the problem is what? The problem is, the interpretation is wrong. It's not what God intended. I hope you're getting the point. Huh? Don't just simply because people say, hey, he, he, he opened the Bible to Acts chapter 2 and read to me, you know. Uh, then it must be correct. Huh? Scripture is used. Scripture is used, but it is not what God meant. It is not the meaning of this passage. The interpretation is wrong. It is still wrong. Okay? Now, 
The important point about this is allegorization destroys the authority of God in his word. Who is the authority now? You become the authority. You are the one who decides what God says. You are the one who decides what God is saying in that passage. You become the authority. You no longer seek God's mind, God, what are you saying? Now you say, I want to say this. So the authority is gone. And next, look at this. Okay, point number seven. The allegorical method is very dangerous because it promotes free-for-all interpretation. Free-for-all interpretation. What do I mean by that? means anyone's interpretation can be correct. It's no more one meaning, it's what you want to interpret it. So I asked you that question, right, last week, and someone tried to answer me, please. I asked, why is applying the correct way to interpret God's word very, very crucial to Christianity? Why? Why is it so crucial? For example, the Roman Catholics take a passage in the gospel that talks about, well, if you do not um, pay back your debts, then you may be sent to prison until you pay back your debts, then you can get out. Alright? So, they allegorize. This means this, this means this, this means this, and then they end up with the, the doctrine of purgatory. Hmm? Purgatory. Purgatory means you must go to a place and be burned and be punished. Then after you paid totally, then you can get out. All right? So that they read the passage and they say this is all the different parts means this and therefore the allegory leads them to the conclusion that is purgatory. Hmm? Charismatics, for example. Slain by the Spirit. I, I said already. No, see, this is what scripture is trying to tell me. Tell me. Okay? Allegorizing. Spiritualizing. Why is that so... Why is it so important to Christianity that we uphold the correct way, literal way of interpretation? Anyone want to try? Ichung? Last week I saw you smiling, so you happen to know the answer? Uh, can you repeat the question? Uh, is it because, um, because we have to follow the Uh, close. So I repeat the question. You think carefully because this whole reason why we are doing all this interpretation is because of this one very important point to Christianity. All right? That's why I want you to think. Why is insisting that there's only one meaning to the text and we must find God's meaning and not our own meaning? We must not make ourselves the authority? Why is it so important to insist on this rule? Because today, people don't. They don't like that. In fact, when, when you tell people to interpret scriptures like that, they say you're very proud, you're very arrogant. Why, can, why must you be only one who's correct? Well, if I'm using scriptures, I'm using grammat, grammar, I'm using historical context, I've, I found the real meaning that God meant, of course, the person has to be right. right? But I say, no, 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 no. It's, you shouldn't be like that. Okay, now, why is it so important that we insist on that? Anyone to try? Shandre? Otherwise, false doctrines can be easily taught. Isn't it true? Now, I give you an example. 
if you, if you allegorize, all right, you say, oh, you know, this part is slain in the spirit, all those things, right? And they say, how do you prove it? But it's, it's like that, it's an allegory. Hmm? It's a spiritual meaning behind it, all right? It's a spiritual meaning behind Then you preach the gospel. Then the Roman Catholics tell you, oh, you know, there's purgatory, there's purgatory, there's purgatory. They say, ha, ah, no, you know, this passage doesn't say that. Then you look at you, but you allegorize also. Why can't I allegorize as well? Right? You go to the charismatics, the same thing. They say, tongues have ceased. No, 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 you cannot interpret this scripture like that. Now, if you do not apply the literal, grammatical, historical method, you have no more basis or authority to go and say that, Mr. Roman Catholic, your interpretation of this part is allegorical, your interpretation of purgatory is wrong. You have no authority because you practice allegorizing yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Very soon, it will be free for all in Christianity. In fact, it's, it is already today. That is why the right interpretation and insisting as a church, practicing the right interpretation methodology is very crucial. It's not being proud at all. It is safeguarding God's purity of the church, his doctrine. You know what happens when, when it is free for all? You know what happens to souls? Souls will go to hell. Because you tell them, no, 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 it's not salvation by grace alone. Because the Roman Catholic's interpretation of grace is not God's mind when he thinks grace. What is the Roman Catholic's interpretation of grace? Grace means all the things that you do. Baptism is a means of grace. Taking Eucharist is a means of grace. Means they say, I'm saved by grace. You know what I mean? I'm saved by baptism, the grace of baptism. I'm saved by the grace of Holy Communion. I'm saved by the grace of saying rosary prayers. I'm saying that is what they mean by grace. How many meanings of grace is there in the Bible when it comes to salvation? I know <laughs> those that are doing Adelphi, you know, many different shades of grace. When it comes to salvation, is there many, type, many meanings to grace? There's only one meaning. The Bible has only one meaning to grace. Grace is what? You don't deserve it. We are going to hell. God graciously grants us salvation by coming to pay for our sins. Graciously do that. That's the meaning of grace, right? They say, no, 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 no. You cannot say that. They say, I'm applying the literal method. Applying theology, um, doctrines, the literal understanding and the plain sense of the word. Now, if you allegorize, you have no more authority. So you're the same as me. Okay, you understand that now? Why it's so important? So important. That's why when people come and tell you, oh, that's your interpretation, you shouldn't be so, so, so argumentative. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all interpret differently. Understand that the person has been thoroughly brainwashed by liberalism, postmodernism in their culture. It has crept into many churches. Don't think that we are a conservative, Bible-believing church. You know what is so dangerous about faulty interpretation? It is this. It, is, it has no denominational lines. It doesn't have any borders. It can exist 
in the most fundamental and sound church. It can creep in, become part of the interpretation style, and very soon the church will change. Do you understand what I'm saying? It has no boundaries. That's why it's so dangerous. Okay? So that is why it is important. Now, there is another argument about allegorizing. Now, what happens if this? Okay, let's, let's do this example, all right? Turn to Acts chapter 27. Okay, now I ask you to practice Acts 27. Okay, those of you who did Acts DSW, you will know this very well. Acts chapter 27. Now, look at verse 8. Let me read to you verse 8. All right, we know the, his, we know the story. Um, Paul was being shipped to Rome as a prisoner. He's on board ship. All right, and then they sail. They were sailing to Rome. Verse 8, And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens. Nigh whereunto was the city of Lasia. And then verse 9, and now when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because fast, the fast was already passed, Paul admonished them and so on and so on. Alright, so the story is this. They were sailing to Rome. They made a stop. And then, and this place, verse 7, alright, when they had sailed slowly many days and scars will come over against, oh sorry, um, what was that? Verse 7, alright. Um, and then verse 8 they came onto a place which is called Fair Havens now at this place Fair Havens Paul say look don't sail further the fast is over means um, the Passover is over now it's November period the winds are very bad the storms will come from my experience don't sail anymore it's very dangerous we will lose our life we can lose our life our, our goods our boat but we know the story, the centurion would not listen to him, then he went ahead sailing. And then this was that famous shipwreck. Alright? The rest of the chapter um, about his shipwreck. Okay? Now, someone who allegorizes, and this is a very popular chapter to allegorize. Someone who allegorizes preached this message like that. Now, they went to Fair Havens, in this place, Fair Havens. And then from Fair Havens, they moved on. And as a result, they encountered shipwreck, right? So the person preached this. Actually, it's Peter Masters. He preached this. Peter Masters applied the allegorical method, all right? He openly says that. He applies both literal and allegorical. So when he preached this, he says that at Fair Havens, um, Fair Havens is a wicked place. It's a place of evil and sin. Now, as a Christian, from this passage, as a Christian, if you go to places like that, hmm, you, your, your Christian walk will be a shipwreck. You will encounter God's chastisement. You have, your life will be full of troubles. The storms of life will engulf you. And you face all sorts of problems that you would not have faced if you didn't go to this wicked place. So Christians, don't go to the bars. Don't go to um, all those bad places, discos, uh, race courses. Don't go to those places, fair havens. If you go there, very soon your Christian life will experience a lot of trouble. Shipwreck. Hey, what a wonderful interpretation. So exciting. I wish my devotion were like that. <laughs> if I preach this message, alright? I preach to you. I say, 
Fair Havens, what a wonderful name. It's fair, wonderful, beautiful. Haven, a place of protection and shelter and rest. Paul told them not to leave the place. If they leave the place that is good, they will encounter problems in life. Hmm? Fair Haven is like the church. You must always be in church. If you leave the church, your life will be a shipwreck. What did I just say? Hey, what a wonderful interpretation. Both are wonderful. But both completely interpret Fair Havens as completely opposite things. One was an evil place. One is a wonderful place. Allegorizing is taking names, places, events, persons, and, and ascribing, it, ascribing to it our meaning that is not there in the scriptures, not in God's mind at all. Understand? Now, I ask you one question. Allegorizing. Actually, is it bad? Did both of us give you a bad message? Was it doctrinally unsound? No, right? Is it doctrinally unsound to say, don't go to wicked places, if you go, your life will get in trouble? It's not doctrinally unsound. Is it doctrinally unsound to say, stay in the church, be involved in the church, learn God's way in church, go to good places, don't leave those places, so that your life will be protected? Is it wrong doctrinally? No. Correct? Both are not wrong doctrinally. So what's the problem? It's okay to allegorize. What is the problem? The problem is we have made God say what he did not mean to say. You dare to do that? You want to do that? We have just made us the authority of God's word. We have just made us the authority and we have just turned God's word into plasticine. We mold it and do whatever we want to with, with it and say, this is what God says. We don't do that. And anyway, let me ask you, if you do that, you think God will bless the message? You are the whole... No, not good example. <laughs> do you think the Holy Spirit, who did not say this, the Holy Spirit in church, hear you say that, God say that. The Holy Spirit who inspired His word, the Holy Spirit say that. Do you think the Holy Spirit is pleased? Do you think the Holy Spirit say, wow, well done, ah. I know that is not what I meant, but I'm going to bless it to the hearts of the people. You cannot. God will be upset. So allegorizing is unbiblical and is irreverential to the authority of God. Do you understand that? But it is very popular. Very, very popular. When we do the tools, I will pull out examples. Different, different commentators, big names, all right, they write many good things. But you have to know their interpretation styles and certain things you have to know. That's why once you know all these things, when you want to use commented, commentaries and all that, you, you will know what to see because you read it. Huh, that's allegorizing. Okay? That's spiritualizing. All right? Spiritualize things. Okay? Of course, the big problem is what? In spiritualizing is Israel has been replaced by the church. Hmm? We spiritualize those passages, those physical promises of God to the nation of Israel. We spiritualize those physical promises into spiritual, spiritual promises for the church instead. Therefore, now the belief, well, the belief um, is that the church has replaced Israel because of spiritualizing. In fact, the allegorical method will lead you or has led to 
are millennialism. Don't believe in millennialism. Because they won't take the simple literal meaning of there will be 1,000 years, revelation. Alright? They read it, they, they don't take it as a literal, simple as it is. God said 1,000 years, he lived on earth, he ruled on earth. They allegorize it. Oh, it is actually a span of time experiencing many different things. Allegorize. Alright? It will change your whole eschatology when you allegorize. Big parts, big chunks of the Bible will change. Okay, I will quote to you the different commentators that allegorize the millennium. Okay? So now, finally I just want to emphasize is this. Behind every false doctrine, every wrong practice, is wrong hermeneutics. Why do you think hermeneutics is important for every layman? Because behind every wrong doctrine, wrong practice, is faulty hermeneutics. Faulty interpretation methodology of the Bible. Understand that? Do you think that's important to you now? It is. Very. Very. You can become cults as a result if you are not careful. In fact, that is how cults arise. Now, if you want to teach, don't go to these places and sin. If you want to teach a particular doctrine, just go find a passage that teaches that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't find a passage, I just want to use this passage. If the passage don't say that, just don't use that passage. If it's doctrinally correct, tell people, don't go to bad places, you know, go choose another one. Oh, a passage comes to mind is, all Christians should what? Um, avoid every appearance of evil. Right? Preach from that. Avoid every appearance of evil. Anything that's evil, don't be associated with it. Right? Find the right passage. Okay, that's why in... Okay, anyway, now, this is how I want to put it. Look at page number five. Some of you are familiar with this. Page number five. Can you look at the second last statement? Second last statement. Allegorizing. Alright, allegorizing is eisegesis. In other words, I put meaning into. Now, the literal method is exegesis. You often hear people say exegete, exegete, exegesis. Exegesis, ex means to draw out of God's intended meaning. Alright? So don't, ice, don't practice eisegesis when you read scriptures. Practice exegesis. Exegesis, read the text, read the context, read it literally, but not wooden literal. Just take it as face value and draw out the meaning. Now, are there many applications? Yes, you must not mix allegorizing with applications. Okay, that's where people go wrong. What do I mean? For example, um, if God says, um, let me see, did I draw any example here? Okay, now, if God simply says, well, I'm drawing a blank now. I think I'll come to some examples later, but draw, there are many applications as we can apply, but the meaning is only one. Alright, so children, be, for example, children, obey your parents in the Lord. How many ways can you interpret that? Of course, children will come up with a lot <laughs> to, to make it sound like it is not what it is. It's just a very simple, simple command, right? Is the meaning very straightforward? Very straightforward. Now, are there many applications? Yes. Alright, children at Shenrei's age, Rei's age, all right, raise age. Now, obey your parents. Now, when I preach to him, I will 
give him different applications. When your parents say, pack your bed, pack your bed. When your parents say, help to do the dishes, help to do the dishes. Alright? Now, if I'm going to preach to someone who is maybe Brother Douglas, alright, grown up already, do I still preach the same application to him, although it's the same meaning? He will still want to obey his parents, honor his parents, but the applications are going to be very different. Right? So applications are different, but don't allegorize. Don't put meanings into names, places, and, and all that. That's very clear-cut, allegorizing. Okay? Now, next. Okay. Um, I will skip the historical critical method very quickly. I just want you to know that the historical critical method on page 6, basically the focus is this. Now, the focus is they use higher criticism, which is a way that they practice in interpreting scriptures. They apply man-made rules. So they study scriptures and say, oh, based on the history of the nations and their writings of the Greeks, it looks like um, Paul didn't exist. And therefore, Paul is not a real person. <laughs> or, um, well, based on documents that we read from secular history, um, his historically, looks like the books, the first five books is not written by Moses. Now, that is always the historical critique's struggle. First five books not written by Moses. The Word of God makes it very clear. Christ himself quoted and said Moses in his writing. Right? God said Moses was the author. But say, no, 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 no. So that's historical method. Historical method, basically, you will see it. I want to bring it up because when I show you the different commentaries, you will see them applying this. You will see them applying this. Oh, you know this part? This is not the author. That person is not the author. And this is historically not accurate. Historical method. So, no. We must believe God is historically true. Now, point number four. Page seven, very quickly. Page seven, please. Now, typology. Another place that we always go wrong. Typology. What is typology? Typology is like, oh, this is a type of Christ. This is a type in typology. Understand? You always hear people say, oh, this is a type of Christ. Okay? Now, what is typology? 4A. Typology seeks to find the linkages between persons, events, and things with, within the defined boundaries of revelation inside Scripture itself. I repeat, typology seeks to find linkages between persons, events, and things. Now, if I put a full stop there, it is allegory. Understand? If I put a full stop there, it becomes allegory. Allegory is always finding linkages between person, events, and things. Oh, Abraham linked with Isaac, linked with um, Rebecca, linked with the servant. And you link this whole thing up. You put individual meanings, it becomes... Okay, that's allegorizing, right? If I put a full stop there. But now, typology, correct typology... Is, is this within the defined boundaries of revelation inside scripture itself? That's why I wrote those statements. In other words, typology, correct typology is if within scriptures the Bible says this is a type, a type of Christ, for example, then it is a type. Huh? If you don't, it becomes what? Allegorizing. Understand? Can you think of types in the Bible? We just preached that in Exodus. The brazen serpent, in number, sorry. Brazen serpent, right? Is the brazen serpent a type of Christ? Alright, clearly, right? I, I gave it there in point, you see, 4C2. Alright, 4C2. So just as God says, oh, sorry, now, 
For example, the brazen serpent is a type of Christ. In Numbers 21, John 3.14, Christ himself say, it is him, it is the type of Christ being lifted up. Right? So the scriptures say that it's a type of Christ. The New Testament did say, did refer to the Numbers event and Christ himself say, I will be lifted up like the serpent, like type. Okay, type. Understand? So this within scriptures. But does it mean every time you see serpent, it is Christ? Where else do you see serpent? The serpent is the deceiver in the Garden of Eden. Where do you see serpent? The serpent in, I quoted there, in Revelation 22, is called the devil and Satan. Alright? So remember, types very dangerous. Because whenever people read, it's very common, eh? so we are guilty of this. Whenever you read water, ooh, Holy Spirit. Oil, Holy Spirit. You know, children always say, do, you, do we sing this? Give me oil in the give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. I hope none of us thinking that is Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? It's, yeah, so oil, Holy Spirit, and then anything that's rock, ho- uh, Christ. Everywhere you read rock, Christ. Cannot, because you really see not every serpent is Christ. Okay? So typology. The ark is the archetype of Christ. It is. Because the New Testament in Peter does mention about those souls in there, they were saved as long as they're in there. Alright? And judgment was coming. And same. So ark is a type of Christ. Um, is Abraham a type of God? Is Isaac... Oh, this one is very controversial. Is Isaac a type of Christ? Abraham wanted to offer Isaac. And then um, Isaac was was a deliver and then a lamb took its place or substitution, all sorts of things, right? You paint on the picture, but we have to ask ourselves, did the New Testament specifically say Isaac is a type of Christ? The most popular is Joseph. Joseph, many writers say, is a type of Christ. From his beginning of his life to his last day, oh, they tie all the events. You read it, you can't even argue with it. <laughs> but remember the principle of interpretation. <laughs> what is it? Unless scripture interprets scripture, comparison, Golden rule number one. And the scripture gives us a comparison and says it is a type. Then it is a type. Understand that? So when you read the Bible, you don't have to worry now. When you do your devotion, am I reading this correctly? You just know. Well, if God doesn't say so, in the New Testament especially, then it is not a type. That's it. Don't have to keep wondering, is this a type? Sometimes you get a lot of questions. Is this a type? Is this a type? Is this a type? So many types. So many questions. Now, even in types, you have to be very careful when you read the Bible. I'll give you an example. G. Look at example G. We must not go beyond the type that God puts. You must not go beyond. Now, remember the example. G, eh, not Jesus was in the bell, whale's belly, sorry. Jonah, please change that. I must remember to change that and update it. Alright? Now, Jonah was in the belly of the big fish for three days and three nights. Right or not? Then in Matthew, was there a mention of it? Is this a type? In Matthew also, said just like Jonah was. So Matthew 12 does refer to that. So is this a type? Hello? Yes, right? It can be a type. It is a type because it's mentioned by Christ himself in the New Testament. So you can say that the Bible interprets itself and say Jonah was a type. Oh, sorry. Um, being in a whale stomach was a type. Now the question is this, when you look at types, you cannot go overboard. 
When next week we study how to interpret parables, it's the same. You cannot go overboard. What is overboard? You must only be very clear what God assigned as the type and stay there. Okay? Now, very specifically, turn to Matthew 12, 40. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Now read together. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is a type. Christ referred to the event and him. Right or not? So we can call this a type. Now the question is, what is being typed? Is Jonah a type of Christ? Very good. I see a lot of head shaking. No. I thought some would shake. Yes. Is Jonah a type of Christ? No. Then what is the type being typed here? Three days and three nights, right? So read carefully. Okay? Now what is the problem if I go beyond what God typed? Or typified. And I say, see, Jonah is a type of Christ. What happens? If Jonah is a type of Christ, so Jonah was in the whale's stomach, the big fish stomach, three days, three nights, Jonah is a type of Christ. Jonah was in the whale's stomach, three days, three nights. Christ will be in the heart of the um, earth, buried, in other words, three days, three nights. Now, what is the problem when I go beyond God's intention of the type? Anyone? Hannah, want to try? What would be the problem if I say Jonah is a type of Christ? Say again. Well, that's one problem. Jonah disobeyed God. That's a good one. I didn't think of that. Jonah disobeyed God. You know, you carry too far. But the big problem theologically, and actually writers use this to fight against certain key doctrines. Because they say, oh look, Jonah is a type. Did Jonah die? Did Jonah die? Jonah did not die. Jonah just stayed in the stomach, right? Jonah came out of the stomach. Did he die and then come out? Did he die and resurrect? He did not. Those that argue against the bodily death and bodily resurrection of Christ, Christians, use this passage to argue based on types that Christ did not physically die. Christ only fainted. Christ therefore did not physically resurrect. Alright? So you see the danger of going beyond what God intended in scriptures. Very dangerous. Alright? So now, so that is type. Those are types. So be very careful. In other words, is this. Now let me ask you, uh, when you read the allegory about Hagar and Sarah, when you read just the Old Testament, do you even think, did it even cross your mind until tonight that it is an allegory? No, right? When you read about Jonah, Sunday school teacher, you keep telling about Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Did you ever occur to you that Christ mentioned it as a type? What's the relation? Is there any way you could have even guessed that it's a type? No, right? Do you know why I'm saying that? Because what I'm trying to say is when God typed things in the Bible, you will notice one thing. You can't even guess why God typed it. <laughs> Do you get my point? 
There's no guessing. But when you say, wow, I have Abraham, and they label the whole thing so beautifully and typed it, they say, oh, I cannot argue with that. You miss the point. When God types, there's no relevance. Do you, want, do you know what I'm saying? No matter how beautifully you can bring relevance in, you notice that when God types, He did not bring any relevance. He just simply said, this is a type. You and I are not God. Only God decides what is a type. And only God knows what is a type. We can see the most beautiful picture of a type. If God didn't say it's a type, God did not meant it to be a type. Same for allegories. No matter how beautifully you spin the picture. Allegory is dependent on one thing. You know what? The convincingness, if there's such a word, of allegory is dependent on what? The oratory skills, the creativity, the fertility of man's imagination has nothing to do with whether God meant it or not. Alright, so study the scriptures to seek God's mind. I want to ask you something. Is the Bible written... How should I say this? Is the Bible written... Is the Bible's focus on men? How many say yes? I should ask the other way first. Is the, is the Bible's focus on men? No, very good. Is the Bible's key focus men? No, very good. The Bible's key focus is God. Always remember that when you approach scriptures. When you read scriptures, the Bible is always God revealing himself, his dealings with you. Is the Bible about what should I do first and foremost? No. The Bible is about knowing God. And after you know God, you know how to live. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. It's always about God. Remember that. That's why allegorizing is a very big problem. Allegorizing is all about man's fertile thoughts. It's not about God. It is not what God thinks. What God intended, what God meant to say, what God chose, purposed in that text. Understand that? That is why allegorizing is very, very man-centered, not God-centered. Okay? So spiritualizing is the same. Spiritualizing is basically allegorizing but worse. It's very flowery and it has many, 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 many layers of meanings. Alright? At least allegorizing, maybe they just assign one meaning. Spiritualizing is so very flowery. I've heard preachers preach that. Okay? It would be a beautiful literature work. But it is not God's work. Alright? So now, that is what I want to focus on. The last one, I close with the last one. And this is the most dangerous one. Okay, the most dangerous one. Reader dependent or reader response. Now, the reader-dependent reader is the most dangerous one because, page 7, the reader determines the meaning of the text. Okay, similar to allegorizing. But, typically, the reader response, page 8, is, God said this to me. Page 8, first, book, first point. God said this to me. This is what the passage means to me. And when there is a conflict that arises... The typical response is, that is your interpretation, I have the Holy Spirit too. Where is this origin? Now, this origin is, is really, it stems out of philosophy of existentialism. Those of you who went through church history with, with me, I hope you remember what existentialism is. Oh no, Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics. 
Existentialism means is basically whether it exists or not depends on you. Okay? If you read the Bible, oh, Jesus is real to you. Oh, good for you. I read the Bible, Jesus is not real to me, but other parts of the Bible are very interesting. Oh, good for you. So whether, in other words, I, I define that, it is the reader who gives real existence, that's why existentialism, to the work and determine the meaning via his own interpretation. There's no single reality. In other words, you can take any part of scripture and say that is what is real to me. And therefore, you cannot say that it is wrong, as long as it is real to me. So it's a mix of allegory, allegorizing, a mix of um, uh, putting ex um, experience first. It's a whole mix of things. It has arrived to this very deceptive stage in Christians' mind. Okay, so now this is postmodernism bringing Gnosticism to the new heights. And all this started in 1938, a, literature, a book called Literature as Exploration by this man. And he says this, uh, students, I think this will be familiar to you. This is how you're being trained in school to think. Now, the teacher should not impose preconceived notions on how to respond to a text. Do you understand that? So the concept is this. The new Christianity is this. No preacher, no teacher, no Christian should impose preconceived ideas upon another on how to interpret scriptures and how he should respond to scripture. In other words, you say you must throw away theology, doctrines. You cannot impose. Jesus is God. You cannot impose that. You cannot tell the person Jesus is God. It's up to the person to read scriptures and interpret it up to him. So you cannot impose any boundaries of theology or doctrine. Okay? So now, that, that is why we have women preachers today. All the boundaries are thrown away. And if, most of the argument today is this, if you have a woman pastor, you ask them why? They will say, because she can preach better than the men. And I'm sure we'll find many of those. Because she can administer the church better than any man in this church. Experience. And when they read passages, they say, no, the Bible doesn't tell me this, the Bible tells you that, it doesn't tell my church this. And therefore, because she's a better preacher, she's more caring, more able than men, therefore she should be a preacher, the pastor of the church. Because of reader response. It depends on how you want to interpret scriptures, what your experience is, and what you want your experience to be. You just do as you wish. No one can impose any predefined theology, doctrines around how you want to see God's word. Okay? Reader response, very crucial. Now, the next thing. Now, the, so the evaluation is straightforward, man-centric, not God-centered. Um, the argument is always this. Because I have the Holy Spirit, it brings credibility. Alright? Because, oh, Holy Spirit is being, being quoted, so I better not dispute. Now, will the Holy Spirit, who is the inspirer, inspirer of God's word, will the Holy Spirit ever contradict himself? Never. Right? If a person says, the Holy Spirit told me this, and then you look at scriptures, but it defines, it, de it contradicts theology, doctrine, the passage, no matter what the person says, the Holy Spirit says, all you have to say, I'm sure that is not, that may be some spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Hmm? Remember one, right, one, one preacher, he said, 
Even if an angel appears to me with a hundred foot span uh, wing and bright light that blinds me and say, God told you to do this. The preacher say, I will only ask him, where is it in the Bible? <laughs> if it is not, I'm just going to ignore that vision. All right? I think that's a good principle. But basically, that is lost today. It's my experience. What I want God's word to say, like the, like the Jewish Greeks, I want God's word to say this. So I'm interpreting it this way. Don't argue with me. Please don't teach me doctrines or theology. That's why, okay, we close with the conclusion. All right? We close with the conclusion. Now, conclusion, only the literal method is the biblical hence valid approach to hermeneutics because it seeks God's intended meaning in the passage and makes God the authority. Understand that? Not the Pope, not the charismatic teachers, it makes God the authority. Page 9. The bottom line of biblical hermeneutics is whether the doctrine is, is not whether the doctrine is incorrect but whether the text teaches it. Be very clear about this point. The bottom line of biblical hermeneutics is not whether the doctrine is incorrect, but whether the text teaches it. Is the doctrine incorrect to say don't go to bad places? If you go to bad places, your life will be in a mess? Is the doctrine wrong? The doctrine is wrong, but the text doesn't say it. Fair heavens doesn't say that. That's the problem. Okay? Now, if, point C, if you can allegorize and be correct, what makes the Roman Catholic charismatic liberals' interpretation wrong? Alright, that's what I've been beating over and over again. Understand that. Okay, the rest are pretty much the same. Um, so, point F. F. The literal method safe keeps the doctrine, purity, and practices of the individual, the church, and Christianity as a whole. Alright? That is very important. So do you think hermeneutics is not important to a layperson? You read the Bible every day. You read books every day. You listen to sermons every day. You, you listen to sermons of other, other preachers. If you do not understand hermeneutics, you won't even spot it. Because, like I told you, even a BP minister could preach in a BP church that Abraham is God, Isaac is the son, Rebecca is the church and so on and so on, because you didn't know, alright? So be very careful. Alright, I don't think we have time for the tools. What is going to happen next week, uh, week after, alright, we have a one week break, is we will run through the tools. What I'm going to do is then to show you, when you read the Bible, how can you get information about background, history, words, what tools can you use, and then we will cover the various commentaries, because you keep asking, is it okay to use Matthew Henry? Is Matthew Henry better than Gill? Is Gill better than um, Barnes? You know, and so on and so on. So I've collected information on that. You just need to know their strengths and weaknesses when you use them. Alright? And then we will also, God willing, look at how to interpret different genres. We have seen the principles, now we actually get to the um, actual genres. Genres means narratives, for example. How do you interpret narratives? The Old Testament, a lot of narratives, all the stories. How do you interpret it? How do you draw lessons? Parables. How to interpret parables? Very dangerous. If you don't know how to interpret parables, you will be like the type. You, everything in a parable is supposed to mean something. You get into big trouble. We share some examples. There's a very simple way to interpret parables. 
You just got to understand. Then each time you read parables, when you do your devotion, apply those principles. How do you interpret psalms, poetry? Poetry are written by, by God, and there is a principle behind it. When you approach a, a psalm, there are, there are principles which you apply, and then you will know the emphasis and the key focus of that psalm. You won't go outside those boundaries. You won't go wrong. All right? How do you interpret epistles, letters? How do you interpret them? How do you draw lessons? The, different, the Bible has all these different genres. You want it to be exciting in your, in your personal Bible study, you've got to understand the genres and then understand how to apply the different tools of interpretation to the genres using the literal method still. Alright? So that's what we want to learn by God's grace. Alright, so that is all we cover tonight. Let's turn to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks for giving us your inerrant, infallible, inspired and preserved word that we can trust 100% with our life. And Lord, we now need to always practice the right approach to interpreting your word, always making you the authority and not turning your word to silly putty in our own hands. Irreverently, carelessly, Lord, we pray that you would more and more help us to love your word, study it, Lord, to build strong foundations, depending on theology, doctrine, and using the four key principles that we have learned. Bless us richly and prepare our hearts for worship this Sunday. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.